I love the talking guy show. I hear two guys talking. 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 Two guys talking are here. I hear two guys talking. Scams are one of the most dangerous threats today, especially when it comes to our elders. As the number of victims and money taken continues to skyrocket, realize that there is hope. ScammerCast is your frontline battlefield for getting educated on the most recent scams, but also how to defend against them. Join us as we detail the processes, the traps, and the solutions to help us all hammer the scammers! Hammer the scammers. It's time for the ScammerCast. Here are your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. Hi, this is Curtis Bailey, your co-host at ScammerCast.com. And this is Art Mains, your other co-host at ScammerCast.com. And we are delighted today to be talking with the expert on social engineering, a little-known term, but one which we have covered here at the ScammerCast in some depth. And so today we decided to go straight to the expert and hear from Chris Hednagy of SocialEngineer.com. Sponsored by Western Union and Midwest Trust. Good morning and welcome, Chris. Nice to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. Chris, you know, this uh, so topic of social engineering is almost, it seems, the intersection of psychology and technology and human relationships. And I'm sure you get asked this question uh, a lot in maybe a lot of different forms, but let's just start from the, the basics. What is social engineering? I kind of have a really broad definition of social engineering because I don't always think it's negative. So I define it as any act that influences a person to take an action that may or may not be in their best interest. And, and I use a broad definition because I think when you look at the positive side of human communication, like how we use influence or rapport-building techniques with our kids, our kids use it with us, or our spouse, significant others, our boss, our clergy, our, our shrinks, all those people that we communicate with on a daily basis, when we look at the psychology behind how we communicate and how we influence another person, mm -hmm. We can apply those same principles to how the bad guys get us to do something that they that we should not do. But when we look at the principles, they're exactly the same. The change is the intent. Mm -hmm. So once we start to analyze that, we understand that social engineering is something we use every day. Yeah, that, that's what struck me. In a sense, we're all social engineers, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, in my work with uh, my clients doing psychotherapy, I'm attempting to use influence for healing and growth. So, yeah, I, I am doing social engineering, and we are when we go out and give our presentations. It is. It comes down to intent, doesn't it, Chris? Yeah, uh, psychotherapy is a, a great example of that because you're, you're, in essence, trying to change someone's coping mechanisms or thinking about a particular topic, and it may be something that's deep-seated, something from their childhood or something that right. is actually an imbalance inside their brain, and you're trying to make them rethink that position, mm -hmm. rethink how they actually cope with those feelings and emotions, and that is a heavy um, uh, usage of psychological principles and of influence in order to, to get people to change their thought process. Right. Right. So how did you get into this field? What, what led you into this, what I think is an incredibly interesting area because I'm such a therapy geek? <laughs> you know, I wish I could say I was a genius and that I had this like massive ten year plan and then it all worked out and I right. can tell you like I'm the next Steve Jobs, but in <laughs> essence it was just a giant mistake. <laughs> um, Isn't that how some of the best things are? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know what happened is uh, I, well I've always had a knack for computers. I always enjoyed the idea of um, hacking and that's not what we think of it as today. Back in my day, I know I sound so old now, but back in my day, hacking was not breaking into things and destroying. It was figuring out how things worked, trying to understand how things operated, and then being able to not only reverse engineer, but put it back together and make it work even better. Right. As I progressed through my career, I ended up working with a company that is uh, something called a penetration testing company. They get hired to hack into a, into a, a client in order to tell them how uh, they were able to do it. And then it's kind of like thinking of a physical. You go to your doctor, doctor does a bunch of tests and tells you what the problems are and then you can get them fixed uh, and that's what a penetration test is and we were like network doctors anytime social engineering was needed and uh, you know whether it was phishing vishing or impersonation it usually was my job on that team 
So I started to write a course to teach other security professionals how to use social engineering in their penetration testing practice. And uh, that led me to write a framework which covered all the physical, um, physiological, and psychological principles used in in, uh, communication and influence. And then that led to a book deal, believe it or not. Again, none of my doing. It all just happened. Right, right. And uh, the, the book deal launched my company. So after it came out, it pretty much was um, people calling me and saying, hey, can you help us with this and that? And now I'm a small company with a bunch of employees doing this every day for a living. <laughs> That's great. Well, it's, it's uh, noticed on your website, which we will definitely post a link to in the show notes, but your title is Chief Human Hacker. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, we try to have fun <clears throat> in our company. It's a... Uh, it's an odd job. You know, you get paid in essence to, um, I guess the best way I can describe it to people who aren't in the industry, if you ever watched the, the Robert Redford movie Sneakers, mm-hmm. right. um, that, that is my job. You know, I get to, to call people all day. Last year I sent out 3.2 million phishing emails and we get to break in the companies. <laughs> wow. And we do it all for the good side and then tell right. them how it worked and why it worked and, and then help them fix it. That's cool. That is cool. So you've used a couple terms. I just want to make sure that our audience understands uh, when you use them. What is phishing and what is vishing? Yeah, thanks for doing that. You know, I often forget that I use terms that people may not um, purely understand. So phishing, and this is with a PH, so not with an F, but phishing with a PH is the use of an email that looks like it's coming from a legitimate source but it actually has fraudulent intent. And most um, phishing emails have one of three goals. Either they're trying to get you to click on a, a link that will take you to a malicious website uh, that will download malware or viruses. Uh, the next is a credential harvester. That means they're trying to take you to a legitimate-looking site that will have you log in with some kind of mm. Amazon, Netflix, bank account information that they'll then have on you. And the third is an attachment, you know, giving you some kind of file a screensaver, an EXE, an Excel spreadsheet, a PDF that's embedded with malicious code that will then give them access to your computer. And all of this is done through emails that look like they're coming from legitimate sources, but but they're not. Vishing is a brand new word. Actually, just last year it ended up in the uh, Webster Dictionary, (laughs) Merriam-Webster Dictionary. And it stands for voice phishing. So it's with a V and then ishing, right? So voice phishing. Uh, same kind of goals, except sending you files, of course, doesn't happen through a phone, but somebody will call you and try to convince you that they are someone they're not. Uh, this is a very big topic right now, especially against elderly people. There's yeah. quite a few scams happening right now around the country against elderly folks. Uh, and the goal usually is either information about the person or financial information in order to steal to steal from them. There's two more aspects to social engineering from a malicious side, which is impersonation, which we see a lot more often now, which is um, actually breaking into a company as a fellow employee or impersonating law enforcement or impersonating security in order to gain access to a physical location. Right. And the last, which is not new, but it's coming back, is something called smishing, and that's SMS phishing, which is uh, using your cell phone in order to send you a text message that has a link to it. It will look like it's coming from Netflix or your bank, and when you click the link, your phone is compromised. I don't know about you, but the large majority of people who have cell phones do everything on them, everything from check their bank accounts to all their contacts. So if your phone gets compromised, it can also compromise your life. Yeah. Yeah, I got one of the the smishing texts several years ago before I even had a smartphone, and uh, of course, I would never have clicked on the link because even at that point, I was learning about this whole area. It happened after my stepfather's scam, and they wanted me to call this number and all this stuff, and I didn't even have an account at the particular financial institution involved. So uh, this has been around for a while, but it's coming back, huh? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's uh, There's a lot right now we've seen uh, look like they're coming from different banks. Saying something like um, the lo- you know mobile logon to your bank has been disabled, please cl- click here to re-enable it, and you click it, and they're asking for your credentials while you're on the site. They're searching what kind of phone you have. If it's Android, they're they're installing malware. Um, if it's an iOS device, they're looking for vulnerabilities. If you're using an older version, or they're just taking your credentials. You know, because there's so much, it's so much easier to not look for the the hints when you're on a cell phone. Mm-hmm. All the things that we teach people to do when you're on your computer or laptop, 
right. are much more difficult to do when you're on your cell phone. That's an interesting observation because uh, you're right. And and when you sort of self-analyze and, and look at the life that we lead, you know, we're very comfortable with computers. We're on computers all the time in, in my legal practice. And then you switch to a notepad or, uh, or even smaller, a, an iPhone or an Android. All of a sudden, all the rules of security that you apply to your interaction on the computer go out the window. Yeah, and it's not only that, but then you say we take that now compromised mobile device, yeah. whether it be a phone or a tablet, and you bring it to your work network. Yep. And uh, most companies nowadays, a lot of companies, I should say, maybe not most, but a lot of companies are allowing BYOD. So you bring your own device to work, it connects to the work network, and now you're trusting your employees who may be doing all sorts of things on their mobile devices that you would not allow at work, but now those devices are connected to your work network. And it can cause just a slew of problems if their personal device has been compromised. So many times attackers are, if they want to compromise your work network, they're looking and at, at the individuals trying to compromise their personal devices, knowing that it can lead to a breach of the of the network. Wow. Yeah, it leads to the bigger fish, doesn't it? Just about every sure time. Does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, you, you mentioned the book deal uh, was sort of the impetus that launched your company. Uh, tell our audience about your book, and I think you have a new one, actually, as well, that I uh, would like you to tell our audience about. I do. So the first book was actually called Social Engineering, the Art of Human Hacking. And it was, uh, at its time, it was the, the only book that really defined social engineering and didn't just use stories. There's a lot of good books out there, like ones written by Kevin Mitnick and other folks, but a lot of them were stories of their their adventures in social engineering and using it as either a legal means or as a penetration tester. Now, this book actually, uh, because I wasn't born this way, I wasn't natural at it, I had to learn it. This book was more of a step-by-step, -step, and here's the principles I learned. Here's the psychology I studied. Here's the different things I trained myself on that helped me become a professional social engineer. In doing that, I actually started to study heavily into body language and facial expressions. Uh, and anyone who reads anything on that knows that your obvious path will lead you down the road to uh, Dr. Paul Ekman. Eventually, you know, long story there, but uh, to shorten it, eventually ended up working a deal with him uh, to not only be mentored by him, but my second book was uh, written with him on the use of um, facial expressions and body language uh, as a social engineer. Hmm. So it was a different type of work. It was applying the 40, 50 plus years of research that he had in his life and his career and now saying, well, how can we use this to influence other people and how do scam artists uh, use this type of stuff to make people trust them? Literally, that book came out and it was maybe four or five months later and it hit me that, you know, phishing is the next biggest wave of attacks that we're going to see in this country. So my partner, uh, Michelle, she helps me run my company. Uh, her and I co-wrote a book called Fishing Dark Waters. And it was all about um, how to recognize fish, how phishing is used, the psychology behind it. And then from a corporate level, how to set up a program to educate employees on, on phishing. So those are the three books as of now. I've gone through uh, virtually all of Fishing Dark Waters and I've also got social engineering, and I've been working my way through that, and you've got some great information in there. Anything in particular that you see as relevant for seniors and those who care for them? Because micro-expressions and things like that are very applicable in the corporate world, but maybe also with seniors as, as they learn when they're confronted out in public somewhere. But is there a way that you see the, the information in Fishing Dark Waters and, and otherwise really applying to seniors. I do. So right now, one of the biggest attacks, uh, there's, there's two vectors that are being used against uh, our seniors. Uh, the first is a phone call, so a vishing call, right. where someone will call and pretend to be their grandchild. You know, so uh, let's say it goes like this. Hey, Grandpa, you know, this is uh, Chris. I'm, I was partying in Mexico for spring break, and I got myself arrested. I don't want you to tell Mom and Dad they're going to kill me. Oh, yeah. I need some help. Can you can you give me five grand for bail? You know, I promise I'll pay you back. I just, I just, you know, I need some money to get out of here. 
And then some other guy comes on the phone, sounds like a police, you know, hello, this is uh, Sergeant, you know, Pedro, and he's uh, caught down here in Mexico, and he's in jail, and if we don't get bail money, he's going to rot here. And, you know, Grandma, Grandpa goes to the, the Western Union and Western Union's money to a complete stranger. Uh, two days later, they get a call saying, listen, this is uh, Sergeant Pedro again. Look, we picked up your grandson. We released him, but he had no money to get out of the country. We need another couple thousand dollars to get him a ticket out of here. And because they've already committed they usually take the action to send more money. Yeah. And, you know, this can be anywhere from three, five, seven, ten, or more thousand dollars of a loss for, for one of our seniors because they fall for this and they, they don't want to not believe the voice on the other end of the line. Sure. There was a lady here in the St. Louis area who lost $250,000 a couple of years ago to this grandparent wow. scam. Yeah, it's terrible. It's incredible, isn't it? Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, the other one that's happening right now is an IRS scam uh, where they're calling uh, older folks and saying that there's a lot of back taxes that haven't been paid and there's a fine that's going to be levied, but they're willing to waive it uh, because of uh, they come up with some fancy name like, you know, uh, American Seniors Forgiveness Trust or something like that, you know, and, and uh, you know, if you pay today. Uh, we'll waive all the old fees and any type of um, future fees. We just want the money for the back taxes. And they, you know, they've done some research and the people maybe know where they worked, talk about some problem with a previous job. And uh, people, of course, are falling for this and, 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 and paying tens of thousands of dollars uh, over the phone for, for these type of a- attacks. Yeah. You know, Chris, we've uh, used a f- term here several times uh, on, on the podcast uh, to explain or maybe characterize the older generation. Uh, we call them the gentleman or gentlewoman's generation because they were taught to be polite. They were taught to answer the phone, answer the door, not to be rude. Uh, to somebody else, and I'm curious if you have any thoughts uh, regarding that. Is that an overgeneralization for that generation or not? It's not, but, you know, and here's the thing is is whenever I talk about this, uh, sometimes people say, so what you're telling us is we need to not be trusting and not be polite, <laughs> right. and it's not the message I like to give. We do, uh, and and you you study psychology there, right, Arch? You know, yeah, like the the we we want to believe that everyone is as trusting and polite and kind as us, regardless of what generation we're from. Now, older generation was definitely taught that, right? You stood yes. for a woman when she came onto the bus if there was no seat left. You, you if a pregnant woman came on, you helped her right. uh, carry her bags. You know, those things were just. I mean, I, I'm not a senior, but that's even way my generation was taught. You know, right. you were. You hold the door open for a woman when she's coming in. These kinds of things were taught to us as as just part of nature. This is how you live and be polite. And you're also taught to trust people in authority. So we we want to tell uh, seniors to, to not lose those wonderful qualities that they have. But at the same time, don't take everything at face value because people are using that very personality trait that you've been taught in your life in order to to compromise you. So when someone says they're your grandson and they're calling, you know what I do is I tell my clients and and friends and family, come up with a code word with grandma and grandpa. Right. So grandma, if I'm if I'm ever going to be in real need, stuck somewhere begging you for help, that you know our our code word is you know whatever fluffy unicorns, <laughs> and uh, and and when you ask me grandma if I, if I come and I say to you grandma I need ten grand, and you say to me hey well what's our code word if I don't know it, then you don't give the money. That's all there is to it. You tell me, nope, I'm sorry, Chris, you told me that we have a a secret word and you don't know it, so I'm not giving it to you. And you don't give me hints, you don't test me out. If I don't know it, that's all there is to it. And something as simple as that can empower grandma and grandpa to feel like they now have a a way to keep their being polite and kind, and yet a, a fail stop that can keep them from being compromised. Yeah, yeah. I was at a presentation one time that I was giving, and this lady came up to me afterwards and said that she had gotten one of those grandparent scam phone calls. And she said to the caller, oh, really? Well, what was your grandpa's nickname? Click. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. See, so and, something like that, and what we want to teach seniors is that they can keep the things that they've been taught, how to be polite, living their life like that, but at the same time have a, a fail stop that makes them feel secure because they know a way to shut someone down if they aren't really who they say they are. Yeah, yeah. That that's one of the big messages for us here at thescammercast.com is empowering seniors, giving them the knowledge and the tools and the skills 
to be able to, as we jokingly and perhaps not so jokingly call it, hammer the scammers. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that's a great one. And they should be, you know, and, and they, they look for the low-hanging fruit. So as soon as you fight back even a little bit, yes. they usually do exactly what you said, which is they click and they hang up and they're done talking to you because you fought back a little bit. And yet, do you see also on your end that the scammers are becoming ever more sophisticated and using multiple pathways to get to seniors, you know, building credibility through online research and layering things like um, offering to fax or mail documents that prove that they owe this excessive amount of back taxes to seniors? Because this is the kind of stuff that I'm reading and hearing about that they're really upping the ante, if you will, and saying, oh, well, uh, yes, you owe this back amount of taxes, and here we're going to send you these documents via email that prove that, that you owe all of this money. Are you seeing stuff like that, too? Oh, yeah. You know, there's two things that just struck me in the last uh, eight, nine months that really struck me as where we are in, in the world today. First, there was a, a very effective um, scam going around. At first, it started with an email that looked just like it came from Netflix, and it said, uh, your Netflix account is being shut down for a failure of payment. Please call this toll-free number. And it was a toll-free number. And give us this reference code. So that you call the toll-free number. Someone answers, hello, Netflix, uh, can I have your reference number? You give them the reference number. They type it into a computer. They pull your name up. They know exactly who's calling. Oh, Mr. Hadnagy, um, yeah, your account's being shut off because your credit card doesn't work. Maybe it was something with our end, but can we confirm your credit card details? Wow. Uh, yes? Okay, good. Now give me your username and password for Netflix. I'm going to log into the account, confirm the details. Good. Now can you try to log into Netflix? And if we fixed it, you should be able to log in. You open up a browser, you go, you, you log into Netflix, it works. Everyone's happy. In the meantime, they got your credit card as well as your username and password. 86% mm -hmm. of the people are reusing passwords on multiple sites. Yeah. So now that they have your password for Netflix, they probably have it for Amazon, they have it for Gmail, they have it for your bank, and now they're able to go and, and do um, information gathering on you and compromise other accounts. Uh, that was one I saw this this year that was a multi-vectored attack that was that was just truly shocking. The second thing I saw, which truly blew me away, is that there's a service on the dark web on the um, uh, you know the dark web that everyone talks about. There's a service offering to malicious fishers 24/7, 365 support. They will correct the grammar and spelling in your phishing emails, really? and they guarantee an increase in click ratio or your money back. Wow. So now there you go. we're no longer seeing, you know, misspellings right. as the way to pick out phishing emails because now they're being corrected for a small fee. Wow. Uh, just those two things just truly shocked me this year. So it's B2B in the scammer world. <laughs> yeah. C wow. Customer yeah. service desk. Right. Holy right. cow. Yeah. And they do. They have and, and here's their ad. Yeah. Fully English speaking um, support reps, twenty four seven, three sixty five support. And and a guaranteed increase in click ratio or your money wow. back. Yeah, well, incredible. I mean, it's a huge. I can't get that from my business. cell phone company. You know? <laughs> exactly. We can't. Yeah, you can't get that from cable. Right. <laughs> no, they got better support than my cell phone company. But I mean, with a multi-billion-dollar business as yeah. it is, I mean, it was bound to happen, I guess. But wow, what a world we live in. So you know, well, you think about this: um, BEC scams, which is business email compromise scams. From January to August of 2015, went up over 800 percent. We're looking at almost um, eight, uh, 14, uh, and, and this is in L this is in uh, L.A. alone. L.A. alone, um, 14.6 million dollars per month are being lost in L.A. alone just from BEC scams. So you look at the amount of money that can be made yeah. from phishing emails, and of course, you know there there will be organizations. To support Fisher. Yeah, in a very short period of time with really uh, minimal effort. Yeah, minimal effort. I mean, to, to stand up an email server that you can send out hundreds of thousands of emails from, uh, you're talking pennies on the dollar. You know, you can stand that up uh, in a cloud service somewhere overseas probably for, uh, you know, no more than a couple hundred dollars a month, yeah, uh, wow. if even that. Uh, and, uh, you'd be able to send out these phishing emails by the tens of thousands and if you're getting even a one percent click ratio, uh, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good click ratio when you're talking about you know in one city 
$14.6 million being on the table per month. Yes, wow. indeed. Yes, wow. indeed. You know, Chris, uh, we had uh, Mark Goodman on the podcast uh, recently, uh, wrote a book called Future Crimes, and he talks extensively in that book about the dark web, and you've just brought it up. Uh, I'm wondering if you could uh, let our listeners know you know, a little more about what the dark web is, because it truly is a, a whole unique infrastructure that uh, most people don't know anything about. You know, the Internet as we know it is often defined or pictured as a, um, an iceberg. And the, the tip that's above the water is what we know as what most people know as the Internet. But um, oftentimes, if you've ever seen a picture of an iceberg, what's below the surface can be 40, 50, 60, or 80 percent bigger than what's on top of the surface. Right. And, and that is the, the, the Internet. So the, what we see on the, on the top is, is the Internet as you know it, you know, Google and all the public web pages. But the Internet started as a way for uh, science and researchers to share information. And, and there's a, a network of computers called the Tor network, uh, to not get too technical, that allow you access to special computers that are not public. Hmm. So servers that house websites that are not public. And not all of them are bad. Some of them are used for research. Some of them are in universities or government buildings. Let's say that some of that is, is, is for good. But the vast majority of what we find on the deep web or the dark web um, are, are things uh, that are nefarious, you know, things like uh, where child pornography lives and human trafficking and drug sales, where identities are being sold uh, on a daily basis after being stolen. So um, the, dark, the, the dark or deep web is a place where there, it's like the Wild West. There's no rules uh, right now. There's no way to regulate it. There's no way to find out where, where people are, where these servers come from. Um, you know, they're, they're now uh, law enforcement are, are finding certain ways to track people if mistakes are made. But the large majority, it's very difficult or, or impossible to find these people. What's found on there is not, is not something that people would generally want to go uh, and search for. The average person listening to this podcast will probably want to avoid ever having to see anything that's on that part of the web. And you need special browsers and software in order to get to it. And it's not like the Internet where you can just go to a search engine and start searching for things. You have to know where these websites are in order to find them and their services that they offer. And I've understood from some of the reports that I've read about the dark web that uh, a usable credit card number sells for just a few dollars and a usable social security number sells for just a few dollars more. Is that in line with what you've uh, observed and or read? You can, like when, when some of these large breaches occurred, like in Target and things like that, you can buy a, a, a stack of, um, of working credit cards for a $100. Um, you know, you can buy a, like a dozen or so for a hundred dollars, and then depending if you get like a Amex Platinum or Black or something, you may pay a thousand dollars. You can buy an identity for five hundred bucks, uh, which will come complete with like passports, driver's licenses, names, date of births, things like that. These these things do not go for very expensive thinking about what they are because there's mass quantity. These organizations, these crime organizations that are that are infiltrating um, corporate America are stealing them by the tens of thousands or the hundreds of thousands. So, you know, if I have uh, 10,000, you know, if you think about it, if I have 10,000 accounts to sell you and I can sell, let's say, a, um, a block of, of, you know, 100, let's say, for a, a sizable price, you know, well, what's 100 into, into 10,000? Not 100 different cases. Now you're talking about a lot of times you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of records. You're looking at the money potential from these sales as being something very lucrative. And they know that a lot of times when it comes to credit cards, like with the Target breach, that soon as it becomes public, those cards are being shut off, discontinued. So you have a very short window of life uh, for someone to use those cards. You know, you, if, if the breach occurs today, you may have until Thursday or Friday to use those cards before the, the people are alerted and the cards are shut off. So it can be overwhelming to even think about this whole area, can't it? It can. You know, especially, I think, for people who uh, may not be computer savvy, whether they're older or not. If you're not computer savvy, it, it, it can become very overwhelming to think about all the different types of attacks. 
uh, we like to, to boil it down and simplify it and say you're just looking, you just need to come into, into the Internet world knowing that there are people out there who will use anything in order to compromise you. So don't lose the good person that you are, the trusting person you are, but but you need to start looking at people as that there's a potential that everyone that is asking you for something is is trying to get something from you that you shouldn't give. So with that in mind, we tell people, like if you get an email from your bank saying there's a potential problem, don't click that link. Open up a browser and go to your bank website. If someone calls you from your bank and says, hey, I need to verify some question, nope, I'm sorry, I'm going to call you from the number on the back of the card. And you hang up and you pull your credit card out of your wallet and you you call the number on the back of the card. Do these things take a little more time? Yes. But when we take the right actions, then we're we're not the low-hanging fruit. The attackers will give up and move on to someone else. Sounds horrible, but you know it's about self-preservation, unfortunately, right now. It really is, and and that's why when we talk to seniors, we are partners in our organization with the National Cybersecurity Alliance. And the point that they and others make is, it's important to always own your online identity, even if you never want to be on Facebook or Twitter or any of these things. Oh yeah, it's important yeah. that you grab your particular name and yeah. credentials and stuff so that you control it, and the scammers can't use it to perpetrate whatever crimes they may be after. Yeah, it was like a year and a half ago, um, a hacker group out of Iran uh, came up with this great plan. They went and sought out reporters that have no LinkedIn profiles or Facebook profiles. And um, then they started them. They found their pictures online, and they started LinkedIn and Facebook profiles for these reporters. Then they reached out to high-end U.S. military officials as these reporters and uh, wanted to do interviews with them. And during the interview process, was able to elicit information uh, from these uh, military officials on projects they're presently on, things that they've seen, where they've been, where they're going. And that was a very successful attack on, on the U.S. military because of, um, of using social media profiles that looked legitimate. So mm -hmm. I agree with your advice 100%. Even if you don't want to use it, get your, you know, just start it and just have it sit there. You don't have to do anything. You, know, you have a Facebook profile. You can post nothing to it. You can just privatize it and you own it. Now somebody can't use it against you. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Well, we are having a fascinating discussion today with uh, Chris Hadnagy, the founder and CEO of Social Engineer LLC and the author of three books now. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, three books, if you can believe that. That's great. Uh, and we will post links, obviously, on our website uh, to your website and to uh, access the book. And we encourage all of our listeners to uh, let us know what kind of phishing or vishing attack have you seen? Uh, have you come across this uh, in your life and how did you handle it? Leave your comments at scammercast.com. Right. And be sure to check out Chris's newest book called Fishing Dark Waters, The Offensive and Defensive Side of Malicious Emails. Well, let's uh, take a short break, and we'll be right back with Chris. It's time to take a break during this episode of the ScammerCast. Have you liked our effort on Facebook? Visit the link via our website at ScammerCast.com, and be sure to share any of our informative articles with your friends and family. It's all about education and protecting our seniors. We'll be right back. A recent study found that most older adults fear running out of money during their retirement years, even more than their fear of death. A trust can be an effective way to manage and protect your assets while you're alive. Now, many folks believe that trusts are only for rich people. They are not. Midwest Trust Company of Missouri, located in Clayton, Missouri, offers professional trust management for clients all across the country. Using Midwest Trust is a great way to know that someone with experience and integrity will manage your wealth objectively. Naming Midwest Trust can provide you with peace of mind in knowing that you or your parents will not be exploited financially and lose all of the assets acquired during a lifetime of hard work. Midwest Trust will even work with you or your parents' own financial advisor. Don't let fear of running out of money drive your life. Contact Midwest Trust Company today by visiting the link to their website at scammercast.com. The discipline to grow. The strength of experience. The ability to adapt. Values 
that endure. Midwest Trust. There was a day when the villain was easy to spot. These days, different. Today, technology allows scammers to reach victims across the globe through mail, email, phone calls, and even social media. Know what to look for so you can help protect yourself no matter where you are. We remind you to never send money to people you haven't met in person and to always verify before you send. You work hard for your money. Don't let a few minutes with a scammer separate you from what's taken days, weeks, or even a lifetime to work for. Western Union, move money for better. Join in a unique, interactive experience as we put you inside the mind and heart of the law enforcement professional and delve into the culture of policing. Hi, I'm Mike Wilkerson from the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, where I've reviewed hundreds of police procedural television programs and movies. But the question remains, does Hollywood get it right? What does it really feel like when you search for a suspect inside an abandoned building? The fear, the adrenaline, the unknown. Law enforcement training for the arts, or LIDA, is an experience like no other. Fingerprints, ballistics, DNA. Our team of professionals have numerous years in law enforcement to include those with experience in the United States Secret Service, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the FBI, the United States military, along with other local, state, and federal entities. Our unique facilities offer the same interactive courses that the police themselves use to train. This will be an experience of a lifetime that you'll never forget. Check out the details now at LEDAConference.com. That's L-E-T-A-Conference.com. And sign up for the upcoming convention. Seats are limited, but we're eager to see you behind the thin blue line. LEDAConference.com. L-E-T-A-Conference.com. Go behind the badge. Welcome back to ScammerCast, your headquarters for the education and prevention of scams against our elders. Let's dig back in with your hosts, Curtis Bailey and Art Maines. We're back from break with Chris Hednegi, the founder and CEO of Social Engineer here at ScammerCast.com. Yeah, and Chris, you've had some terrific information for our listeners in the first half of the show, and now we want to turn our attention more toward what are some of the signs that people should watch for when it comes to scammy emails and scammy phone calls and all the different vectors that you've identified? What should people be listening for and or watching for? You know, we used to tell people that it was always grammar-related and things like that, but of course, as we stated before, those things are getting fixed. So the hard part now is uh, what we'll often find with phishing emails, let's start there, is that they're using certain motivators like fear. Fear is a big motivator in phishing emails, things like your account's been compromised, your credit card's been used, um, there's an arrest warrant out for, you know, issued for you because you didn't take this action. Um, a lot of phishing emails are, are based on fear. Others are curiosity or greed. So things like, um, you know, you could be part of this uh, $40 million uh, deal if you do this, or, you know, hot Russian brides, you know, right. those things that will pique people's curiosity um, that will either cause a feeling of greed or fear. So when I often tell clients when we're, when we're talking to them, is try to think about your emotional content when you're reading an email. If it triggers a pretty strong emotion, I write in my second book about something called the amygdala hijacking mm -hmm. and how um, emotional processing power shut down logical reasoning ability. And the scammers may not understand the psychology behind that, but they're definitely trying to use that by shutting down your ability to think reasonably, hoping you take the quick action. Because they don't care if you figure it out after the fact, if they can get to compromise you, then they win. Right. So we often tell people, try to analyze your emotional um, content while you're reading the email. And if you feel yourself getting afraid or you're getting angry or getting curious, to take a break for even five seconds, five seconds just before you take an action and think about what it is. So here's an example. I get an email that says, 
your recent Amazon order is not being shipped due to a client credit card. I'm busy. I have 150 emails sitting in my box. I'm about to head out to a conference. Natural response is click that email on the link and go and fix the problem. But if I realize that emotionally content says I'm getting afraid because that order that order may not be shipped and I need it to be shipped, the right action is instead of clicking the link is to open my Amazon account through a browser and see if there's any order problems mm-hmm. with my previous orders instead of clicking a link in the email. Did that take me three or four seconds longer than clicking the link? Yes, it sure did. But if that email was illegitimate, then it would have saved me from the hassle of clicking on a phishing link. That's the first part. Second, when it comes to phishing, we always tell people the same thing. The, the motivators will be a little bit different as opposed to uh, fear. It's usually the trust factor and rapport because now they're talking with you. So things like the I'm your grandson, they're using the fact that they hope you love your grandchildren in order to, to help them out enough. Uh, so we, you know, they're playing on those emotions. Uh, with the IRS, again, it's fear. They're, you know, you haven't paid these taxes and we're going to have to issue fines and arrest warrant, so you better do it. So we tell people the same kind of, of details is is think about the emotions that you're feeling when the request is being made. If someone calls you from your bank and says that they need to verify some account details and, and you're in a rush, okay, I can't deal with that right now. I don't want to do that real quick, so I'm going to call you back later. Now what the scammer will try is to give you a number to call back. Okay, no problem. Call me back directly here. Well, you can take that number. That's fine. But call the number that you know for your bank. Call the number on the back of your card, the number you find online for your bank. Those things can keep you secure. Do they take more time? Yes. And in the busy lives that we have, we often uh, don't want to do the thing that takes time. But that extra time can save us from a massive loss. And here I would suggest that our listeners also have uh, or take a moment and go listen to our episode of the ScammerCast where we talk about the five flags, the emotional triggers that get uh, activated in scam victims. So be sure to take a listen to that at ScammerCast.com. Yeah, because if you can identify those emotions and you start feeling them, now there's a, a protection method in order to, to you know stop, think, let logic and reasoning take back over and not react. Chris, are there any specific recommendations you make with uh, your clients or even just general observations about how people can sort of make that self-assessment? I mean, uh, you, you, you raise a very good point. We lead such busy lives, and we're, we're always focused on the thing right in front of us and getting things done. And even for the elderly, oftentimes they're, they're just focused on other things and not thinking about what their emotions are, how they check in. How do you counsel your clients to sort of take that break to, to stop and assess their emotions before they act? <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one, right? It's easy to say and hard to do. That's the $64 um, million dollar question, right? <laughs> it really is. If I had an answer for that, I'd probably would be sitting on my yacht doing this podcast. <laughs> well, you'd have a fourth right book now, out. <laughs> Yeah, my my private. I'd be on my private helicopter flying yeah, into yeah. you know the the fact is and, and you know last year I mentioned this before last year I sent three point two legitimate three point two million legitimate phishing emails. I wrote a book on phishing. I would consider myself a subject matter expert, but I clicked on a phishing email uh, this past year. Yeah, um, and I tell people it's not about human stupidity. I hate when people say that it's a uh, stupid people click on fish. That's not the case. Right. If the right emotional trigger comes in at the right time, anybody is susceptible to it. And I consider myself a subject matter expert, and I clicked on a fish. How do you fix it? Well, my fix was I got saved from the results of the fish because it was an Amazon fish. Um, I clicked on the link, and then what saved me is I looked up at the URL bar, and I noticed that it didn't go to Amazon.com. It went to some site.ru. Huh. And I realized it was a Russian hacker site, and that stopped me from logging in and giving my credentials over. So although I took the first bad action, my training saved me by not taking it further because I first looked up at the URL bar. So I, I, you know, what I tell people is that you have to know the right actions to take even if you fail at one point. Now, there's another factor to that, which is let's say I failed completely. Let's say I clicked the link and I entered my credentials, and then I realized something was wrong. Well, we can't just kind of brush it under the rug or, or, or do what I call the ostrich syndrome, you know, put my head in the sand right. and hope no one sure. sees me. Yeah. I have to go and fix it, right? So now I have to take some actions. I have to think, 
Um, I need to change my Amazon password right away. I then need to think that I reuse that password on any other site. If so, that needs to be changed right away. You know, I may need to also now watch the credit cards that are on that account more closely to see if any fraudulent charges come through um, and, and then be quick to react to that. Uh, so, you know, certain things have to happen when you fail to take the right actions. And we tell people you need to know those actions. And then you need to take them swiftly and quickly and not make excuses for not taking them. Like when Target was breached, too many people just sat back and said, well, the credit card company will make me whole. I don't have to do anything. But there was more information than your credit card. They now had your full name, your home address, your date of birth, your phone number, your email address. That made you susceptible to phishing and vishing scams. So when people sat back and said, well, let me just, you know, let the credit card make me whole, that's one aspect of a multi-vectored attack. So uh, smarter folks said, no, I need to go monitor this. I need to go change passwords. I need to make sure that I'm not getting compromised in other methods. Again, that's kind of a depressing bit of information because the average person is not spending their eight hours a day thinking about all the different attack vectors that exist out there. Sure. So this will be a shameless plug, but like our website, the social-engineer.org site, is devoted to basically just looking um, at news about current and recent social engineering attacks and then writing blogs on them, tweeting them, um, and trying to help educate the public on what's happening so that way they don't have to spend their time researching it, but there's a resource that helps them know what kind of attacks are happening. And we will certainly post links to all of those resources on, on the show notes page at scammercast.com. But Chris, it, it, it all just still comes back, though. It's about taking personal responsibility, if you will, for your own safety uh, and your own online identity, right? It, it does, yeah. And that's a good point. You know, we can't expect uh, our email companies, the government, or any other entity to really protect us from this because. You know, you and I, we have jobs, and, and we also have family. So, you know, after hours, I'd like to go and be with my family and not working and thinking about it, uh, although that's not always the case. That's what I'd like. The bad <laughs> right. guys don't, don't have those limitations. Uh, they may have families and things like that, but this is their lifestyle. This is what they, they, they have to be successful in order to make a living. So they usually eat, breathe, and sleep this. So we find that the, the malicious side of the fence is generally a couple paces ahead of us good guys. Yeah. We're, we're very reactive um, instead of proactive, right? Something happens and we're, we're now reacting to it and seeing what can we do to fix it and how, we, how can we protect from it. But in the hacking world, there's something called an O-Day. That means it's an exploit that hasn't ever been released, so it's zero days of, of, of life. And an O-Day, there's no way to protect from it because it's something that no one knows about except for the attacker who built the exploit. Right. So, you know, protection many times is reactive, and we just need to kind of get that in our heads when it comes to human attacks, that that's nothing wrong with that. Um, if we fail, fine, but now let's figure a way to fix it. Very good. So uh, besides um, being aware uh, of, of the different kinds of threats that are out there and having some training and um, you know trusting your gut, so to speak, and, and, and checking in on your own emotions, what other recommendations can you offer our listeners on how they can protect themselves from the the evil sides of social engineering? So some of the, the tips that I give from a technological side um, are to not reuse passwords. Reusing passwords is probably one of the biggest problems that we have. Now, that sounds horrible to many people because you have you know, Amazon, Netflix, Gmail, your bank, <laughs> your, your phone yes. company, your utilities. you got like 30, 40, 50, 80 passwords you need to remember. But reuse of passwords is probably one of the biggest problems that when a compromise occurs is how other things get compromised. So we tell people to not reuse your passwords, but to, you know, to make sure uh, that you can use something like a password manager, something like KeepPass or uh, another program that works on your operating system that allows you to store your passwords. And all you have to do is remember one password, uh, one for KeepPass, and everything else is, is stored inside that program. Uh, when it comes to passwords, don't choose things that are easy to figure out based on social media. You know, we look at, at last year, there was all this news about celebrities being hacked. Well, they weren't hacked uh, many times. Uh, there may be a couple cases of that, but much of the, the time, when we saw naked pictures of celebrities on the Internet, the way it occurred was um, finding out uh, Paris Hilton's Gmail account, going to the, the Gmail, um, I forgot my password page, 
and it gives you an option. Would you like us to email you a new password, or do you want to answer security questions? Oh, I'll answer security questions. Security question number one, what's the name of your dog? And that's something she tweets, Facebooks, <laughs> LinkedIn's all about. <laughs> so you have that, right? And right. You know, what kind of car do you drive? And all that information's out there. Now the person can reset her password. They logged into her account. They checked her sent folder, and in her sent folder was all the naked pictures of her that she had sent to her boyfriend or significant other. And now they download them and post them on the Internet. So it's not a hack as much as it is an insecurity in the way that password resets work. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're if you using a password that is your child's or dog's or spouse's name with a number after it, most likely you're you're using very weak passwords that will be compromised. So we suggest using things that have upper, lowercase, special characters. We even suggest using phrases. You know, if if my password needed to be something like I was on scammercast.com, exclamation, exclamation, yeah. with the spaces and capitalization, that's a pretty long dang password. And it's something that no one will ever guess. And it has upper, lowercase, and special characters in it. So, you know, so I'm not saying that was my password, but, you know, something <laughs> like that. Sure, sure. And it's, uh, and it's secure, and it's easier to remember, and I'm not having to uh, worry about it um, being reused elsewhere, right? So yeah. we tell people, I know it's a long answer to the question, but when it comes to passwords, it's probably one of our biggest weak areas, and um, one of our weakest areas in, the, in, in security, what we see with people is, is just how we reuse and use weak passwords yeah. over and over again. How do you feel about uh, two-factor authentication protocols? Yeah, I think it's a great step in the right direction. Now, there's ways around it. Uh, we actually did a test for a company where we were able to bypass their two-factor authentication without going into details on that. Sure. It, it, it's a great step in the right direction because, in essence, what you're doing is you're saying that I'm not just getting a, a, a password that I have to log in, but I also have to have your cell phone or I have to have a voice or something where I can give you a code that now says you have authorization to access uh, access this system. Uh, so two-factor auth is a, is, is a great step in the right direction. It's not 100% foolproof, but it definitely um, adds a layer of complexity that makes it more difficult to attack. Are biometrics the answer going forward then? Is that even better? Uh, you know, I know a lot of cell phone companies have tried that. The... Um, um, so I, I'm a believer in biometrics. The the challenge I want to say is is using the right kind and the right level. You know, there was a um, uh, where was it iPhone or was it Android? I can't remember. One of them had, I think it was an iPhone. They had facial recognition for logging into your phone. And instead of using like 23 points or 11 points or 50 points, they used three. <laughs> so what they found, a bunch of people who were able to compromise that phone was that I can use a picture of Mm -hmm. the person to compromise their phone. Mm -hmm. Or I can use a relative. So if I have a brother who's in similar age and we look similar, he would be able to unlock my phone. So when we trust in biometrics, we have to trust in the fact that, that the companies that are implementing them are doing it in an intelligent way and not just doing it as a cool factor. Yeah. Right. So it's cool to unlock your phone with facial recognition. Uncool that it was three points, and yeah. no system on earth uses three points as legitimacy. So it was pretty lame uh, to offer offer that. Uh, same thing with fingerprint recognition. You know, some of them when they first came out, it was a uh, very very weak on fingerprint recognition to unlock your phone. Uh, they weren't using anything even standardized to like what the police or law enforcement would use as many points in the fingerprint. They were, um, they were really bringing it down to a lower level. So, uh, you know, having, having a fingerprint recognition, but doing it in a way where it's, it's closer to, to reality, closer to something that would make you more secure. The, the challenge for these companies is anytime they do that, you need to increase tech support because, you know, somebody, uh, you use like a 23-point facial recognition system, and then, uh, you know, somebody gains weight over a year, and all of a sudden they're locked out of their phone. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you do to support that? You know, how do you fix that? You know, somebody uh, uses the biometric fingerprint to get into their phone, and then, uh, you know, they get into a little cooking accident, and they, they, they burn the tip of their finger. You know, mm-hmm. how do you support those things? There's a lot of tech support problems that come up, and oftentimes companies go to 
I'm going to take the easy way out as opposed to the right way out when it comes to tech support. Right, right. Yeah, support doesn't make money, does it? No. <laughs> That's why I see I see it from both angles. Yeah. Um, I do think that, that biometrics is, is – um, is, is a great uh, methodology moving forward if we can make it work right. Again, like anything else, it's not foolproof. Um, it's not foolproof. But any time that we take out the – we make it more difficult for the attacker to, um, to gain access easily. We have to we – ha- we make them get, have to get another piece of information. It makes us less of the low-hanging fruit. Yeah. And that's, that's valuable to me as, as, a, as a protector. Right. Second factor off. Does it have flaws? Yes, it does. But it makes it more difficult for the attacker to breach your accounts. So I'm a big believer in it. Yeah, and you made that point earlier in the the episode too about how if we make it harder for the scammers, they will typically move on. And and that's maybe the biggest takeaway is make it as hard as possible for the scammers to get to you or the seniors that you care about through education, through practice, and just that always heads-up awareness. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, for most of us, the majority of us, right, not the, um, the super rich and famous where people just want to attack you because you're you, but for the majority of us uh, here today listening to this, we're, if we're the low-hanging fruit, we're going to get picked off. If we're not, they may move on for, until another day. Yeah, very good, very good. Well, Chris, tell tell our audience in the time we have remaining with you today a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day basis and who you're working with uh, as far as professionally. So I am the um, the not-so-good-looking, unsexy edition of Robert Redford in the movie Sneakers. <laughs> um, that, is, <laughs> that is my job. So if you want to see, you can watch that movie. But um, basically, companies hire us to break into the human network of their company through either phishing, vishing, or actually, you know, breaking into their organization physically. We do it uh, friendly, uh, you know, using influence. We don't do it in malicious ways, and we do it as part of an educational process. So company hires us to fish their employees. We then report their click ratio, how many people took the wrong action, and then we educate their people on what to do when they see phishing emails and how to not get caught by a fish. That education is repeated, and then they're refished until we start to see those numbers change and people are no longer falling victim to those scams. We're a very proactive uh, uh, education company for human-based attacks is probably the best way to describe us. Our average client would be someone like a Fortune 500 um, law enforcement government agency uh, for the training side of our company. We do a lot of government and law enforcement and things like that. Um, and, and then the services side, generally um, Fortune 500s or, or larger companies that um, that have lots of employees and a very large attack surface. Gotcha. All right. I mean, well, anything else that you want to say to our listeners uh, before we wrap it up? And also, how can they uh, interact with you? Facebook, Twitter, website, that sort of thing. I have I have a personal Twitter account which is Human Hacker, and then we have a corporate Twitter account which is where you're going to find um, lots of news about uh, the scams and things that are going on, and that is SOC Engineer Inc. So you can um, follow those. Our websites are social-engineer.org and social-engineer.com. Um, on there is links to all the social media, so Facebook, LinkedIn. Google Plus, I think anything else that our company has, it's all on both of those sites. Um, I think you guys do a great job covering this topic, and um, you know, hopefully there's even just a couple tidbits here that will help some folks um, be more aware. Oh, there no doubt is. Uh, you've given an, uh, our audience uh, some really great uh, information, and, and uh, hopefully they will take heed and take a little responsibility and be more aware in their day-to-day interactions with other people and with technology so that they can stop and think before they react. Yeah, Chris, I mean, I really want to thank you for everything that you've shared with our listeners and with us today. Uh, It's a great set of reminders about how to keep yourself safe and how to stay ahead of the scammers, and I really applaud you for the work that you're doing and uh, hope we can have you back again sometime. Yeah, thank you. I would love to. 
So we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the ScammerCast, and we invite you to interact with us. Leave us your comments, your stories. Have you ever clicked on a phishing email, and how did you handle it? And if you like this show, be sure to tell a friend, a family member, or a colleague, and help us spread the word so that we can hammer the scammers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the ScammerCast, your headquarters for education and protection of our elderly from scams worldwide. Be sure to visit us at ScammerCast.com, where you can send us your stories and tips, as well as send us your feedback, visit our Facebook presence, and more. Thank you for listening to this episode, and until next time, Hammer the Scammers. The information we share in this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should never substitute for appropriate legal, financial, or medical advice from qualified professionals. Always consult with an attorney, physician, or financial professional for the correct advice for your particular situation.